Welcome everybody to Beyond the Box Set, a podcast where we normally pitch prequels, sequels and spin-offs to films that don't have any. I'm Harry and joining me as always is John. Hello. And now last week we did our Sideways episode and so joining us now live from California, one of our listeners and the award-winning author of Sideways, Rex Pickett. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it's an honor. Thank, yeah, thank you for joining us. So yeah, we, we really enjoyed doing this film. This is one of my very favorite films of all time, and I also love the book. So uh, I think one of the first things we'd like to hear from you is kind of how that process was for you when it first kind of came out, because the book and the film kind of came out around the same time, didn't they, which is kind of unusual. Yeah, the book was, you know, nobody wanted the book. I mean, originally, the book was written in 99, although actually, it probably took me a lot longer to write it than that. But uh, that's a longer story. And uh, I gave it to my agent at Endeavor. His name was Jess Taylor. He was a book-to-film agent who had come out from the East Coast. And I was completely nowhere in my life at that time. And he flipped for it. He loved it. When he came out to be with Endeavor, their now William Morris Endeavor, I had now had another publishing agent in New York. And I'll try not to be too complicated here. And he had taken me on for a novel prior to Sideways called La Parisima. It was a mystery novel. And we couldn't sell it. Thus, Miles, who can't sell a novel. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically cannibalizing myself. And, and, and as, as a lot of writers in Hollywood, um, you know, you can't put your, all your eggs in one basket. You have to just keep writing and writing. There's no rhyme or reason why anything happens up there. And, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record as saying there's 100 screenplays within 10 miles of Beverly Hills that if you put the right configuration of people together could win 10 Oscars. It's just there's no rhyme or reason to it and I don't want to get into names or films. I'm very very critical when it comes to films. My background is not in novels. My background is largely in film. But anyway, long story short, we went out, my agent flipped for it, the the one who had come out from the small literary agent to be at Endeavor in in Hollywood and and I now had two agents and um we went out to both publishing and film with it. Publishing um, world hated it. The rejection letters which your agent sends you, because they're sent to the, the agent and then they're sent to me, are, were just withering. They were way worse than the, than the rejection letters for La Prisma. And it's a slow process too because it takes them time to read the manuscript. And, and so my publishing agent pulled the book after about 18 rejection letters because he thought it was... Um, uh, it was he wanted me to rewrite it basically, and um, my book to film agent at Endeavor, the one who had taken me on for La Parisma. I hope I'm not getting too uh, convoluted here. He he, you don't get, you don't find out about the rejections in Hollywood. They just people pass and that's it. You know you don't even hear about it usually, for the most part. He was getting nowhere, and about six months into these submissions. Jess is his name. He um, literally had a nervous breakdown. He left the business. I saw him at a book signing um, for another client, and he came up to me and says, I'm leaving the business. And I was devastated. I was devastated because my publishing agent in New York, he didn't really like the book. He told me that. He says, I don't even really like your novel, Rex. And, uh, but I'm going out with it because Jess wants me to go out with it. And Jess now was about to leave the business. In fact, the last time I saw him was um, in Beverly Hills at a at breakfast and then I walked him to the psychiatrist's office. But meanwhile, what you're not aware of is one of the submissions he had made was to Alexander Payne's agent, David Lawner, and it was an inner office submission. And so he walked it down the hall and said, you know, you, you got to read this, you got to read this. Bear in mind, this is an unpublished manuscript. And Alexander Payne was fresh off of election, his second film with Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. And even though the film didn't make a lot of money, Alexander was hot inside the beltway, as we say here. I mean, he was hot. He, he was definitely going to be in the driver's seat for whatever he wanted to do. But, of course, naturally, he had manuscripts, books stacked up in his office, stacked up, stacked up. And this was just another one that got thrown on the pile. And I think his agent was really looking for him to do something much bigger. And we can get to that story later. And not a small seemingly indie film about two guys who go wine tasting and and whatever so that book was was left with David Lawner among many other people when he didn't hear anything I, I'm sure that Jess just figured nothing you know had come of it he hadn't read it or gotten around to reading it so he left the business I 
at the time when the novel was was you know when I gave it to Jess and a couple of other people read it too and they went nuts for it they loved it you know and I thought my god you know things are finally going to happen for me bear in mind if La Parisma had been published it was a mystery novel they would have done a deal for at least two or three more because you have a recurring character like you know Philip Marlowe and and thus there would never have been a sideways because I would have signed a deal to write mystery novels you know so sideways really came out of the desperation of writing a novel La Prisma that wasn't I was just getting rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter so I drew on that as well it, so when Jess left the business Jess Taylor it, it was a very difficult time for me I, I was literally literally nowhere but meanwhile the manuscript is sitting on a pile in Alexander Payne's office. Alexander Payne has an assistant, Brian Beery, and he get, he gets absolutely no credit. No one ever mentions his name. And one day, you know, he's he's poking through the pile. And he reads it, falls in love with it, tells Alexander Payne, "You've got to read this. You've got to read this." You know, gives it a ringing endorsement, and Payne reads it on a plane back from the Edinburgh Film Festival and alienated a girlfriend he was with because he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't stop turning the pages got off the plane rushed to a phone booth and called his agent and said I, buy this novel get it whatever it just went nuts and um i think i was you know down to my last five dollars and probably unable to pay rent or whatever and i came home and i had an ancient answering machine and there were two messages on it and i had the agent who replaced Jess Taylor at Endeavor had taken me on, and he was his assistant was screaming on the phone, Brian, call Brian, call Brian, scream. He's just screaming on the phone. I'm going, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, and the person who ultimately became the producer, Michael London, he was continuing to, you know, for no fee, uh, you know, with you know without optioning it, he was still trying to push it because he believed in it as well. And then he went on to take credit for everything, and, and I don't really want to talk about him because it's going to dredge up some really bitter stuff. But uh, he called, of course. Now he, you know, he's, he's smelling, you know, blood in the water. And it, it, was, it was nuts. So that was one year after the book had been finished and gone out and been submitted. Suddenly there's, you know, my answering machine is with screaming adults on the, you know, answering machine. And so what happened is, is that, you know, obviously I, I called them back and Alexander Payne said it's going to be his next movie, you know, screaming, you know, whatever. And you have to understand in Hollywood, and you guys know this, but maybe some of your listeners don't realize, it's really about who has the green lighting power. And we know that heads of studios do, certain directors do, certain actors do. You know, if Leonardo DiCaprio wants to do your script, you know, it's, it's going to at least get option. Forget the fact that he's probably optioned 50 scripts and they're all orbiting around him. And, you know, once you find that out, it's pretty, you know, dispiriting. But, you know, who knows? Maybe you will be the one. Alexander's the same way. He's got a lot of projects orbiting around him and he doesn't do a lot. But these are people with green lighting power. And when they get excited, oh, trust me, everyone gets excited. Suddenly, I think David Mamet, the great playwright and screenwriter, once said you know when you find yourself in that moment suddenly these people show up and start to convince you that you need them and uh, you know like Michael London for example and you know now they want in they they smell money big-time money but anyway on on the sunnier note you know I talked to Alexander and he said a lot of wonderful things to me and I met with him and um, you know initially he well first thing he said to me this is kind of funny uh, he said, you know, Rex, bear in mind, sideways, the novel was written in first person from the standpoint of Miles. So you're talking to Miles. And um, he said, you know, Rex, what I loved about your novel so much. I said, what? He goes, your characters are so fucking pathetic. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, thanks. You know, I, I was going through a rough patch, but, you know, I tried to, you know, bear my soul and, and write the truth, you know. And so thus began, you know, that now there's interest from somebody really big and, and ultimately he optioned the book and he wanted to originally go off and shoot it low budget in Super 16, kind of what he said down and dirty. And I said, fine, you know, I mean, whatever. Um, we took a trip together, the two of us, to the setting of the film, the San Inez Valley. For those of you who don't know where that is, it's about two and a half hours north of Los Angeles. It's about an hour north of Santa Barbara and a lot of people confuse it with Napa Sonoma which is a very famous wine region this area the San Inez Valley 
is not a famous wine region at all and it was basically an rv crowd but there were there were wineries up there i went up there initially to play golf to get out of my horrible life just i got in the car drove up there would would um you know get a room at the windmill inn just like miles and jack for 29.99 um it was a cheap getaway for me the windmill inn by the way is now the sideways inn it is officially the sideways inn they have a sign over the main highway 101 and you walk in the lobby it says sideways there this tiny little town of los olivos and i mean tiny like two blocks by two blocks it used to be just little you know uh, antique shops and stuff used to have a couple tasting rooms because a lot of wineries uh, make their wines out of warehouses they're small and they don't really have wineries per se but they'll open up a tasting room sometimes and there used to be two or three tasting rooms when i used to go up there in the 90s to get away from my crappy life there are now 55 tasting rooms in that two to three block area wow <laughs> that's that's how huge sideways is hitching post i mean they're I, don't even get me started he's a multimillionaire, the owner of the hitching post and that used to just be a you know his wine he doesn't even make his wine it's made by Teravant, and they make they'll they'll make a wine for you john or you harry you're me you know they'll make a wine for anybody and they did it to cut out the distributor and they sold it in their restaurant and of course in the novel i was going up there and i was staying at the windmill inn i'd play golf and i'd go to the nearest restaurant and i'd walk because i didn't want to drive because i was you know drinking a lot back in those days and i'd sit there and there'd be nobody in the bar and and basically the only wine on the menu was hitching post and and i would rhapsodize about it i did genuinely fall in love with pinot noir that's true but i rhapsodized about it um because i wanted a character to have to be enthusiastic about something in life because he seems to be pretty down about everything else in life but i'm enthusiastic about a wine that is pretty much a mediocre wine and but you know you it flies off the shelf on in major um you know food store chains now and and whatever and um you know i mean these the people up there have made made millions and millions of dollars the tourism is unabated really <laughs> wow and uh since the movie has since the movie has come out you know i didn't see see those dollars hitching post saw a lot of them so it really it really changed a lot of things so uh, so alexander when i went up there it was a sleepy little nothing place he fell in love with it because it was it wasn't tourism-y, like, you know, Napa Sonoma or whatever. Um, And then I got a call a couple months later after he had optioned the novel, and it started out casual, and then he said to me, "Um, Rex, I got some news for you. I'm going to go make this other film first, but don't worry, I'm going to make Sideways next. And then he went off to make About Schmidt. He was going to make Sideways after election. And of course, having I've written and directed two feature films, I know what it takes to make a movie. It's today in the digital day, you can you know crank out maybe a movie or two movies a year. But the way Alexander works, where he's hands on from screenplay all the way through post production and, and promotion, in that one phone call, I realize I'm going to wait at least another two years, and my heart just sank. You don't know if the bloom is going to be off the rose. You know he's going to come back in two years. Option money is is very little. The the you know, the, the gold, of course, it's not just so much the money, it's also a film, you know, being made. I mean, a screenplay, you know, we always hear that it's just a blueprint. And that's true. It really is a blueprint. It's it's an unpublishable thing, you know, and even though my, my novel was unpublished, you know, the adaptation from it, um, which he had yet to do, was going to be, um, it, it, it's only validated if it becomes an actual movie. Short of that, it's just, you know, it's nothing. So that was pretty brutal. Um, but, you know, he went to make About Schmidt. In fact, actually backing up here a little bit, you know, p- before that phone call, Artisan Entertainment, which was fresh off a, a huge hit with that horrible film, The Blair Witch Project, they, uh, they, they, greenlit, they greenlit sideways for $10 million and it was front page news in the Daily Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And my agent, my publishing agent, bear in mind my book to film agent at Endeavor, the old one had left the business, the new one, they were excited and they went back out to the publishing world and they still all turned it down, all of them. And in fact, the only sale we made was to the Japanese. But because they believed it was going to be a movie. But the publishing world, New York publishing world, apparently didn't believe front page pain goes sideways 10 million dollar film greenlit and they still wouldn't publish the book the japanese bought it but 
you know, so I thought I was going to be the only author whose first novel would be published in a language he couldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be a great claim to fame. I'll go back and tell you another little story, too, is that, you know, I, I made two films. The two films I made in the 80s, early 90s, um, feature films, and they took 10 years out of my life with my now ex-wife and a wonderful woman. She produced them. She acted in them. But she's now chair of NYU Tisch School of the Art graduate film. She did a short film in 99 at the AFI, you know, she went back to the, she went to the American Film Institute to reinvent herself as a director, got in, I wrote all her first year pieces, and then she was one of only four directors to get to make a feature, uh, excuse me, a thesis short film, which they completely support and fund. And I wrote that, it was an original screenplay called My Mother Dreams, The Satan's Disciples in New York, and it won the 2000 Oscar for Best Live Action Short. But when she read Sideways, we still stayed close. When she read Sideways, um, she told me to burn it. I mean, and, and I mean, she hated it. There were people who hated it. Uh, the publishing industry. One thing about Sideways is, and this will go to sequels and screenplays and stuff we're going to talk about, is I'm not, you know, I guess I'm maybe more of a novelist now, but I'm, I was principally a screenwriter. So when you write screenplays, screenplays are scene-driven, they're, they're dialogue-driven. They're character-driven. Novels often aren't. I mean, without mentioning names, there's a lot of novelists who'll spend three pages describing, you know, the changing, you know, features of the sky in the most beautiful prose imaginable. But they're not storytellers. I mean, a good, a good I will mention, Cormac McCarthy. People think he's a genius. He's a great writer. I don't. I hate that guy. He's a wonderful prose stylist. You know, but he can't tell a story to save his life. I mean, just go watch The Counselor, which, you know, was his first screenplay. Every movie made except for No Country for My Old Men, but that's different because it's the Coen brothers, um, has, has been a terror because he can't tell a story. Sideways gets damned with faint praise, the novel, because it, it dares to be, it starts literally in media's rest with dialogue. So it reads a lot like a screenplay. In fact, Alexander Payne said it. In, in many interviews, he said uh, adapting Rex's novel was one of the easiest things my partner Jim and I did because he he thinks like a filmmaker. You know, I, I, I really, I'm very much into, I don't, I don't really care all that much about describing a room or a, a sky or, a, or whatever. I mean, I'm more into, um, you know, the dialogue and the interplay and bringing characters three-dimensionally to life, which is the hallmark of a good film. You know, in screenplays, you don't take that kind of time with your prose like, you know, certain writers who's now I'm not going to mention any more names, who I admire the writing, but not the storytelling. And it's about, really, it's about storytelling more than anything else. And I think it goes to, when if we talk about adaptations and, and things, sometimes the best novels uh, make the worst movies because it's really hard uh, to distill the story out of for instance, The Great Gatsby, which has made dreadful movies in more than one, um, because the story is so, there's something almost like filigree about it. It's about a mood more, and, and it's, not, it's, not really, it's not really story or character-driven so much as it is, it's, it's almost mood-driven in, in, in a way. And I think, you know, Sideways kind of benefits from that, but, it, but it's also painfully personal, the novel. Um, even though it's fictionalized, and I've had to answer this question many times, it's very personal. And I drew from, I mean, Miles it was me, a guy who, you know, was drinking too much, who um, is, had a novel he couldn't get published. And Alexander changed him to being a school teacher. In the novel, he's not. He's an out-of-work screenwriter. And, um, and I did take a trip up there with a friend of mine, Roy Gittens, a great guy. Did we do what, you know, they did in the movie no of course that's fictionalized in order to you know have a story but but the emotional spine of the characters and the way they they speak and talk was drawn uh, very truly and unsparingly and unflinchingly from my own life that's one of the things that I think we found really interesting about the film is that kind of portrayal of kind of male friendship and kind of that, that dynamic between those two people who are quite different in, on the surface, but obviously have this very strong connection that's held them together for all these years. I mean, I think everyone who watches the film or reads the book probably has different perspectives on whether that's a healthy friendship or not. I mean, given that it is kind of drawn from your own life, what's your kind of perspective on Miles and Jack in particular compared to maybe you and Roy? It, do you think it is a healthy friendship? Is it a friendship that's going to continue after the kind of the end of the novels or... 
Well, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. Any friendship that has a certain sense of loyalty to it is is valuable, even if it has dysfunctional elements to it. And bear in mind, you know, Alexander Payne, when he said to me, you know, said to me, you know, what I loved about your novel so much is your characters are so fucking pathetic. I didn't, I don't see my friend Roy, who became Jack, I don't see him as pathetic at all. And, uh, and I think, again, I love the movie. And if we talk about the adaptation, it is 90% faithful to my novel. And in Hollywood, that is, that is summoning Mount Everest from adaptation standpoint, because in anyone else's hands, it could have been two guys doing jello shots in Cabo San Lucas. I mean, you know, I mean, he shot it where I actually wrote it. He, the, it's, it's very, the, uh, most of the dialogue is pulled straight from the novel. Uh, the scenes follow it. Even, even the, the chapter, the way the chapters are built in the novel, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. He literally has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It goes even deeper than that, the faithfulness. It's written in first person from the standpoint of Miles, so that means you can't go where Miles doesn't go in the novel. But in a movie, you can, because all screenplays are third person. You follow me? So you could go off with Jack, and Tara is her real name, and they change it to Stephanie, and that's another story. But, you know, you could go off with him. He never does. He's, Miles is in every single scene. The movie is in, short of being voice, putting in voiceover, the movie is in first person. Going back to your question about their friendship, one thing I look for, I, I, it's not conscious with me. It, it, it comes instinctually. I look for opposites. So I'm, I, I may not sound like it to you, but I'm very much an introvert. You know, I'm a reader. I'm someone who spends a lot of time alone. Um, my friend Roy um, is, a, is, is a classic extrovert. When I was 19 years old, I took a couple quarters off from the university here in, in San Diego, and, and I read the entire collected works of C.G. Jung. Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychiatrist, and volume six, Psychological Types, goes very deep into introversion and extroversion. And you have classic opposites here. So I'm an introverted thinking type, and Roy is an extroverted feeling type. And when you have opposites like that, you have a complementariness in a way between each other. There's a lot, you know, Jack needs Miles's reflection on life badly because he's lost you know, all sense of perspective. And in a way, Miles needs Jack to get him to the world and get him out into the world. Now, I don't think schematically like that when I'm writing, but I think we're often drawn to those kind of opposites because I've heard from a lot of people say, God, you, you just can't believe these guys would be friends. They're so different. But that's precisely why they are friends, because they're, they're opposite sides of the same coin. And, the, and, you know, we've done Sideways the Play three times, and it's going to go a fourth time uh, now to Sonoma. In fact, it was done in London last summer. And and one thing you see in the play is it, the play is obviously a different medium. The play is 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 based on my novel, not the film. I can't use anything in the film that wasn't in my novel, but there wasn't anything, you know, I, I had more stuff than I needed for the play. But one thing you see in the play is Jack's loyalty to Miles. You see a little bit more heart and soul. And I And again, I don't I don't want this to be considered a, a criticism of the movie because I love the movie. I mean, it's just, it did a lot for me. It, it was incredibly critically well you know, received. It, it won many, many awards and, and every screenwriting award imaginable. So it's a huge honor, and, and, and Alexander Payne did a great job. But Jack is seen a little bit as kind of a sexual terminator. I mean, he's a guy who's just, he's kind of, but in the play, he's got a little bit more heart and soul, a little bit more understanding. He, you see his loyalty to Miles. And that loyalty, it, it's, you know, it, it's, hard, it's hard to buy that in this world where it seems like everybody wants something from you. And I think that, and, 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 and Jack has Miles' loyalty as well. And those are, those are very valuable components. You know, it, Jack maybe hasn't read the collected works of Jung, but he knows who Jung is. And there's, he's, not, he's not a dumb shit. He's not. And sometimes I get the sense in the movie he's a bit of a dumb shit. It, he's not. He's a smart guy. He went to college, you know, whatever. Yes, Miles, me, I'm probably overly, you know, intellectual and overly intellectualized things. But I love that contrast, you know, between the two of them. And the low common denominator here, let's face it, is, you know, getting shithoused. I mean, that's what brings that's what brings them down 
to this kind of low common denominator and where they can really connect on a certain level. I, I, that relationship makes makes perfect sense to me in a way. It's it's not like Roy is somebody who I'm on the phone with and talking to, but if you're going to go up to the San Inez Valley, as we did back in the days before you you really you could get into the hitching post and you know all these places that you can't even get into now um you know he's a fun person to be with you know so when the um obviously when the film starts getting produced and then the casting kind of comes in obviously that must be quite a surreal experience because you do identify the character so much as an extension of yourself to suddenly see who they're going to cast to play this role and how he's going to then interpret the screenplay and the novel so were you aware of paul giamatti and thomas hayden church were they kind of how did you feel initially when you heard that they were the people who were going to be cast Great question. Um, Alexander Payne, like other really good directors, thinks casting is everything. In fact, he's told me if he can't cast something right, uh, he won't even make the movie. And he had in his mind somebody, and at that time, Paul Giamatti, um, American Splendor, where he plays the comic, you know, the sort of um, self-lacerating Harvey Pekar, had yet to even come out. And Payne was going kind of crazy. He couldn't find his miles. Um, Thomas Hayden Church had um, auditioned for a role in About Schmidt, and he went with Dermot Mulroney, but he remembered Thomas Hayden, so he had it, and Virginia Manson begged and begged and begged, you know, for the role, and um, and, and he gave it to her because she did, she gave a great reading, and she's very soulful in, in her few minutes that she has in the movie, but he couldn't find Miles. In fact, he what happened was, th- this is how Payne wanted to work, so after About Schmidt, he, he suddenly had even more power than after election. He, in fact, I often have said to him, I think you needed to make a film about maturity in order to go back and make a film about immaturity. So he had more power. He got out of the deal with Artisan Entertainment, whose fortunes were now floundering. And But before he did a deal based on the screenplay where casting was going to maybe be imposed on him, um, he wanted to walk in and say, this is my cast. Take it or leave it. And he opened a casting office in L.A. at his own expense and in New York. And I was in L.A. and everyone, uh, now Michael London is the producer and and the casting director, John Jackson. And they were really at a loss. And suddenly I'm I'm on the lot at Warner Brothers where the office was. And Michael got a call from Alexander and and he wanted to put me on the phone. He goes, I just found our miles. He was screaming, excited. And I said, who's that? I said, Paul Giamatti. And I said, who's that? You know, and I, and I know a lot. I come from film. I didn't even know who he was. And uh, so he, he, was, he was very excited. You know, when I met him, obviously, you know, he doesn't look like me at all. Um, but um, I think he's the, you know, in many ways, he's the heart and soul of the movie. He, this is going to sound really critical, and I'm probably going to take some flack for this. But I think you could, I think you could take almost everybody out of that movie and replace and i mean cast crew everybody out of the movie but there's three people that are irreplaceable in terms of you know obviously you know at the risk of immodesty and not to toot my own horn i did write the universe and i did create the characters alexander payne is the great maestro i mean he you know he he's he's a he's a great you know adapter of of novels and and he's a very very uh, perfectionistic director he gets things you know, the way he wants them. And he's, he's actually a very cool guy. He's not a screamer like some directors we won't name, but, but he's very demanding in getting it how he wants. And Paul Giamatti, I think when I've done the play three times, I've seen three Jacks and they've all been fantastic. I think it's a role that a lot of people could have eaten up. Don't get me wrong. Thomas Hayden Church is brilliant in it, but I think, you know, without the source material, without Alexander Payne, without Paul Giamatti, I'm not sure it's, it, it, we would be talking about it here a dozen years later, and it's become such an iconic film. You know, Paul, although maybe doesn't look like me um, and, and maybe doesn't have the same kind of mannerisms in some ways, not that I care. I, mean, I wasn't looking for a, an apery of, of Rex Pickett on the screen, God forbid, but, but he, he, he really is fantastic in the movie. He, you, you care. Here, here's a guy who's embittered. He's, he's you know, self-flagellating. And, um, you know, you almost think in, in, in one way, if you tilt it slightly one way, he's a whiner. And why should we care about a whiner? He takes money from his mother. Although I will say in the novel, it's different. He takes money from his mom. His mother is, is wealthy, not that that justifies it. And Payne puts her in a middle class existence. And number two in the novel, without the money, he can't pay his rent. He can't go on the trip. So there is, 
I have to admit, there is some motivation for it. In the movie, it, it makes them look, well, pathetic, because that's how Alexander saw them. But but I think we forgive him. There's something we, we want to forgive him. We want to care for him, because I think that Miles is so relatable, and Jack too. They're so relatable to so many people in the world. We don't, we're, we're used to seeing superheroes. We're used to seeing guys who are jacked. You know, they spend more time in the gym today than they do in acting class. Um, you know, we, we don't we don't see those kind of really relatable, you know, characters who have hopes and dreams that are getting dashed and, and you know, as, as mine were at the time, you know, they, who feel real. And I think it still resonates. I, I'll, I'll even go out, out on a limb because I think about content a lot because it's changed so much. I don't think that Sideways, even with Alexander Payne, would get greenlit today as an original film. I, I don't think, no, not, it was, it, the film was made for 16.5 million. So today that's what, 22. Uh, 22 million for two guys who go wine tasting and, 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 and no, no name stars and, and not, not exactly, you know, uh, George Clooney's or whatever. Um, I, I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it gets made. I mean, when Alexander Payne decided on, on Paul Giamatti, and Thomas Hayden Church, he had his cast. He owed a first look to DreamWorks. They went into DreamWorks, and DreamWorks said, we love it, we'll give you $30 million, but we're not going to, and I'm not going to say the name of the person who said this, because he's famous, we're not going to give you $30 million for a film starring that homunculus, meaning Paul Giamatti. So what they wanted was, you know, George Clooney is Jack, and they wanted, I don't know, uh, Ryan, I mean, Ryan Gosling would have been too young, but, you know, somebody who was like late 30s, but who was more of a, a leading man kind of person. And then here's your 30 million. But to Payne, that's already compromising. And and the same thing happened at Universal where he owed a, um, he also owed them a first shot at it. And, and Fox Searchlight and Peter Rice, who's no longer at Fox Searchlight, he's Fox Television, a wonderful man. They just stepped up to the plate, and, and he had a mandate that at $15 million, even though it went over budget, he could greenlight anything. And he, so he gave Alexander final cut, and he gave him the cast he wanted. And so that is very, very, very rare today. So Payne got the cast he wanted. He got, you know, he took less money, way less money, although he ended up with gross points that made him a lot. But, you know... He, he made the film he wanted to make. It's so rare. I didn't really know until I, I got to go to a cast reading up in the San Inez Valley, which is very beautiful. Oftentimes there's a lot of tension on a crew, but there was no tension at all. And and, and in the reading, Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden was electrifyingly funny, and Paul had so much soul, and Virginia Matson had so much soul, and Sandra Oh, and, and it was a very, it's only 30 or 40 of us there, and it was two weeks before they started shooting, and I just thought, my God, you know, uh, if they just light it right, you know, I mean, you've got the location, the setting. Uh, one of my favorite uh, film critics is Peter Rayner, and I liked what he said about Sideways. He gave it, you know, just an A-plus review, and um, he was talking about Alexander's earlier films, Citizen Ruth, Election, and About Schmidt, and how they you know they're they're satires but they you know they they tend to be pretty withering satires they often not often they mostly kind of stand their characters at arm's length and kind of slap them silly in a way and yet they're brilliant films brilliant satires and peter rayner said after going taking you through that and said but in sideways alexander payne traded in his sarcasm for a soul and I, you know, he he moved away from Nebraska. He he shot it in 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 beautiful Southern California in this little known wine region, which is quite beautiful. And that whole speech with Virginia Matson, I think it, it it elevated it to another level. By the way, that speech was never in the early drafts of the screenplay. It was just Miles nattering on about Pinot Noir. And he he gave me every he gave me every draft of the screenplay. And I wrote in the margin. You know, I said, wouldn't it be lovely if she had a complimentary speech, you know? And it came in the third or fourth draft, and it was beautiful. And they shot it, and he tried to cut it in post-production. I know he doesn't, he probably, if he hears, is hearing this, he, he probably doesn't like me saying that. But it's true. I was in the mix mixing studio when he just, he, he, he thought it was too sentimental. And he, and he believes that sentimentality dates movies i i disagree but you know it can't they can but i didn't find it sentimental not mawkishly sentimental i thought it 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 
it it it brought out a kind of a a soulfulness, if you will. And he literally it was ne- never going to be written. And when it was, you know, shot, you know, bear in mind in the editing room, he's watching this stuff over and over and over again. It can start to look treacly. But, you know, he was talked out of the tree on that one. And, and it's probably next to the famous Merlot scene and the number one question I get asked. That's probably the most famous scene in the movie is her speech on wine. Well, it's the speech that got Madsen an Oscar nomination, I would say. And and it and it literally and it literally almost wasn't there at all, uh, not just once but twice. Oh, that's fascinating. So, what's the um, what's the future of the of the world got got in stock? Are there going to be any other films? Because I know that you've written uh, a couple of books after this one. Yeah, I mean the the second novel came out, and it's you know it's a it's a long road journey, and and, and it's a four thousand mile road movie, and it has an ending somewhat similar to the Descendants. You know, not that anyone would remember. And it's, you know, it's eight years later and Miles is now a successful author and a bit of a degenerate. And uh, Jack is divorced and on the skids and has a kid, and which is kind of true about my friend Roy. Miles' mother has had a stroke like my mother had and she's withering away in San Diego in an assisted living facility and wants to be with her sister in Wisconsin. And uh, Miles gets offered to um, be the master of ceremonies as I was at the International Pinot Noir celebration in Willamette Valley, Oregon. And Willamette Valley is a a wine region in Oregon, a large wine region that is heavily planted in Pinot Noir, which is of course the grape that Miles rhapsodizes about. And so Miles hatches this crazy plan, half in his cups, he rents this handicap equipped ramp van, piles in his wheelchair uh, bound mother a Filipina, pot-smoking Filipina nursemaid, Jack himself, and 12 cases of wine, and they take off from San Diego in route to or- in route to Wisconsin via Oregon. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a massive road movie, and um, and it's an emotional journey. It, it, it's comic, and then it turns emotional. But it, it's, it's, too, it's too big. The one that I'm more, and I'm proud of the book. It, it, in 2012, it won the Independent Publishers Book Award and gold medal and all that. Um, but it is Sideways 3 Chile. I was offered to go there in 2012 you know, just to research a novel, and I didn't have to write the novel if I didn't want to. And, and I fell in love with Chile. It just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new frontier of wine that a lot of people don't know about. It's geographically and topographically very diverse. And I ended up writing a novel. And, and But the novel got improved with the screenplay adaptation, which I have just finished. Um, it, it's funny, it's heartfelt, it's, it's 10 years later, and it has um, uh, a more kind of, you know, I think one thing I wasn't aware of when I wrote Sideways, but I became aware of it when I, when I wrote the play and saw the play, is, you know, a lot of women, you would think that this would be a, a guy's movie but a lot it has actually as many women fans as as men and in fact when you go to the San Inez Valley if you ever get a chance to come out and go up there on some crazy weekend where there's 55 tasting rooms in Los Olivos and the hitching post is four deep at the bar you know and you can't get in and everyone is and and at Fest Parker they've got the spit buckets screwed down to the countertops because people pick them up and yeah and want to take selfies with them you know uh, drinking from the spit bucket it's crazy (laughs) (laughs) oh no i mean it it, i mean i'm not joking the windmill inn there's just this downbeat play i used to go to it because it was cheap that's what i could afford to i can't even afford to get into the miles and jack room (laughs) it's the same room but it's like 500 a night now surely you get in for free I mean, I, I, I suppose, I mean, I have a lifetime certificate at the hitching post, you know, but I don't know. So it, it's, you know, I'd love to see Sideways Chili because you have to understand, I know you guys, you, you had, a, so I, I really enjoyed your podcast. I just got to tell you. Oh, thank you. I, first of all, of course, you opened it with, with these wonderful, mutually uh, ecstatic hosannas about the movie. And that always makes us feel good. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm always happy when somebody says, oh, you wrote Sideways, I loved it. You know, sometimes I'll go out to my car and get a book and sign it for him. I just, you know, the fans, you know, uh, they matter to me so much. And and so, and also the things you were saying about it. And I thought, you know, why does this resonate so many years later? You know, it, it, it's funny, but it isn't just ha 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 Adam Sandler, you know. It's, it, it's got a, a certain intelligence, and, and as you guys said, 
you know, every time you watched it, you saw something different in it. But I, I often ask people, like when I'm at the play, you know, it's not on right now, but when I, I would go to the play and I, I would talk to the audience, a lot of younger people never saw the film in a theater. Think about it. Their first time they saw it was on DVD. I saw it at the closing night of the New York Film Festival with 2,000 people. Alice Tully Hall, Lincoln Center, closing night, huge buzz, a couple of days before it was going to be theatrically released. And then, of course, there was a, a premiere at the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, red carpet. That was 1,200 people, a, a, an electrifying, raucous, raucous screening at the Arlington in Santa Barbara, so just south of where it was shot, a 1,500-seat theater. You couldn't get a ticket for that, you know, screening. It, the laughter was so was so deafening you couldn't even hear dialogue sometimes for a minute especially like after you know the the naked guy comes running out of the thing I mean and then of course when it opened theatrically I would go to the theaters and it would be like say a 500 seat theater would be sold out because it was it was opened in limited release I mean that's just electrifying and then you know pretty soon it moves out of the theaters and and then it just it's just you and the DVD and you see different things in it but you can't you can't duplicate those 1500 seat screenings i mean they're i mean i don't know about you guys you sound relatively young did you did you see it in a theater when it came out i saw it in the cinema yeah i, I was about 20 when it came out um so i saw it in the cinema and it, like you say I, I was not a middle-aged man i was a young you know just a student but it still really resonated with me there were a lot of things that really resonated with the character of miles and as i kind of said on the podcast um you know, I, I every time I watch it at different stages of my life, I kind of see it in a different way because you get to have different experiences and different perspectives. I think that's probably the key to why it's so successful and why it has endured because it, it does tell a story that's not specific to a certain demographic, but that anyone can kind of take away something away from, whether it is about themselves, about friendships, relationships, or anything. So, so I've seen it in the cinema and I've seen it many times on DVD since. I think Harry might be a little too young to see it in the cinema. Yeah, I think I might have been about eleven or twelve when it came out. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, I, I never got to see it in the cinema, unfortunately. But I've, I must have seen it up to five times. Wow, I've met I've met people who've seen it a hundred times. When you saw it in the cinema, did was it was it a packed audience or was it a, you know like a few people or? Well, yeah, it wasn't a fifteen hundred. Uh, this was in here in Leeds, which is a northern UK city. But uh, this was obviously the, when the film came out. It had already done the American run. It had already, I think, it was already nominated for several Oscars at that point. So it was one of it was like a film to see. Yeah, I know. I know it was nominated for a lot of BAFTAs and it, it won a couple. But but there is something really different about seeing it with like like I said, two thousand people. You know, at you know, I mean, it just it's just a totally different experience. You, the comedy is um, uh, it's electrifying. It, it's it's you know, and you just can't duplicate it. One kind of nice thing about the play, however, is is that um, you know I was able. We did it at La Jolla Playhouse here at my alma mater, the University of California at San Diego, and it was a four hundred seat theater. And although play is different, of course, then you know. Then a, a movie, it's a different medium, but it's still the same story, same characters, different actors, obviously. Um, but I, I, I got that sense of, you know, what it's like in a larger audience. You know, when I watch it on DVD, and I haven't watched it in a while, but I've seen it a number of times. You know, I, it's the smaller moments that um, I think um, the more downbeat moments that resonate more with me than when I saw it with a large audience were some of those bigger comic set piece moments you guys mentioned when Miles runs down the hill drinking and, you know, quaffing an entire bottle of wine or obviously when they run the, you know, car into the tree and or, you know, the naked man, which, you know, hugely funny drinking from the spit bucket, you know, um, I, you know, they're funny, but it's it's different when you're watching it all alone on TV, you know, and, you know, and I, I think that there's, you know, I, I think that what Miles is going through in life is um, is something that, you know, a lot of people can relate to. I've met so many people, I mean, either through email or in person, told me they saw the film and they changed their life. They they just, whatever they were doing in life, it was wrong, was soul-destroying, and I got to do something else with my life. I, for some reason, the movie you know, motivated them to, inspired them to just, I don't know, give up their life and go do something else with their life. And um, it, it, it had, I don't know, it, it hit a nerve with a lot of people, not just men and women. And back to my earlier point, I talked to a woman after uh, the play 
And she said, you know, you've written one of the greatest, great love stories. And I go, you know, of course, in my normal humorous way, well, I suppose some people might see Miles and Jack as gay. And she, go, and she laughed and she goes, no, 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 no. She goes, I mean, Miles and Maya. I said, really? You know, because in the, in the movie, Maya only has 12 screen minutes. But we remember her from that one huge speech. If that speech wasn't in there, Maya would disappear from the movie, almost. I mean, she really would. That speech is huge. She only has 12 screen minutes, you know. But in the play, she has more. And I gave her more. And, and there is a love story because when women are watching it, you know, they're keying into Miles and Maya, you know, wanting to see them together. And, of course, in the novel, you know, she, come, she shows up at the wedding. And Alexander said, well, you know, Rex, that's too Hollywood. And I said, oh, give me a break. You know, I'm not Hollywood. I mean, I'm, I'm so anti-Hollywood in, in, you know, I'm not a formula writer. And in the early drafts of the screenplay, which he gave me every draft of, you know, and he listened, it all, we, all the first three drafts ended. He did four drafts and he shot it. The first three drafts ended with Maya's message on Miles's answering machine when he comes home from school two months after this whole trip, whatever. And it, was, it went to black. And I remember in my, you know, sardonic way, I said, you know, that, that's a great ending, Alexander. Why don't you just, when you go to black, just have a gunshot? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and that's it. I just said that, you know. You know, I, I've, I've written a lot of things that are kind of dark and bleak and depressing, but I said, that's how it feels to me. You know, he, he drinks his, his coveted, you know, Cheval Blanc in a, in a Burger King, for God's sakes, in a styrofoam cup, you know, and then he gets a, me a heartfelt message from this woman, and then it just goes to black. And so in the fourth draft, he had Miles get in the car and drive up in the rain with this beautiful music, and he knocks on her door. And that didn't come until the fourth draft. I'm not going to take credit for it, and I'm not going to take credit for Maya's speech about wine, but there was no question that my prodding did that. It got Alexander thinking, you know, if I end on this, it, 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 is, it is pretty bleak in some ways, you know, and, and yet there's some sense of hope when he goes up there and you know okay so Maya doesn't show up at the wedding but um that's cool you know he changed that and that's fine but um in the play she does and and there is after all this raucous comedy there's you know there's tears in people's eyes when she shows up at the end in in the play in in addition the the play in some ways cuts a little you know I think Alexander has some trouble with, um, I shouldn't say that because he's going to see this as critical. I think he's, he's leery of, of, of emotion, of, of emotion going too far. And I'm not leery of it. You know, I'm, for instance, the scene on the beach where the two are, are sitting on the bench after they drink from the spit bucket. In the book and in the play, both, Miles has Jack take him to the beach and he goes out in the water and tries to drown himself. Jack pulls him in. And there's this heartfelt, the guy, he has a complete emotional breakdown in the book, a complete emotional breakdown on the beach, bedraggled from being out in, out in this cold surf over his head. That is in the play. And it's one of the most powerful scenes in the play. It cuts way more emotionally raw in some ways. I mean, you know, and, and I think Alexander is right in the sense that movies maybe can't handle that kind of heightened drama or emotionalism the way in which theater can in some ways and of course in a book it's up to your imagination and it's different so i think he maybe made the right choice not to do that for sure to do that but i'm willing to go to that place if you earn it and so for me when maya shows up at the wedding at the end i felt like i mean the guy has taken so many hits i mean he's got a you know, steal from his mom to pay his rent. Now he's got a, a guy, you know, he's looking forward to this week, but his friend wants to get laid. Oh my God. You know, then he meets this nuclear chick and, and it's like, he knows he's going to get blamed for it. And he takes that hit and, and other stuff happens. But the, the coup de grace for him is if his novel doesn't get published, that's it, that it's over. 
And so when he finds that out, it's like he doesn't give a shit about anything anymore, drinks from the spit bucket, tries to drown himself. Jack saves him, which shows Jack's real sense of loyalty and, 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 and depth of, of feeling for his friend and depth of understanding. So when Maya shows up at the wedding, I mean, it's like you, you want to give this guy something to hold out hope for. You know, I, I felt like I had earned it in some ways. And so it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a powerful moment. I'm not, I'm not into tack on a happy ending bullshit. You know, um, I think you have to earn that kind of, you know, ending. But yeah, Sideways Chili, I think I, I really, I really love the script. It's, it's, I'll, I'll give away a few spoilers here if we make it. I mean, look, guys, I'm going to be quite honest with you. <clears throat> Alexander has not wanted to make a sequel. The rights are owned by Fox Searchlight. When I talk about Sideways probably not getting greenlit today, that's true, but not a Sideways sequel. One phone call. One phone call. This is the weirdness of Hollywood. And Alexander said, yeah, I definitely, I want to definitely do Sideways now or whatever. It would automatically go straight into production. There'd be no question asked, especially if Paul Giamatti wanted to do it. There's, there's no question. I mean, the, look, look at the world we're living in. And yeah, even though they're not having a, you know, a great, you know, summer with these, you know, stupid sequels and reboots and, and cannibalizations of old TV shows and, and regurgitations and, you know, they're on, you know, Fast and the Furious 8 or 9 or whatever. They've just done too many of them. But a sideways sequel, the fan base is is colossal. I mean, it's not just you guys and, and people have come to the play and, you know, and, and, and the play now is going to the world and everything else. I'm not going to say it's going to gross a billion dollars, but it's changed the wine world. I was in Tuscany for five months writing an original screenplay. Every People in small towns, anywhere in the wine world, they know the movie. And they don't make movies like that today. And so the sequel, it's not, you know, like you guys were riffing on The Hangover. And I actually, the first one, which by the way, is a ripoff of Sideways, if you think about it. Four, four guys instead of two go to a wedding and everything that could go wrong, Murphy's Law, does go wrong, you know, and then they make it to the wedding. It's a complete, in fact, I believe the writer-director even mentioned, he said, well, we were kind of inspired, you know, and they even, it, I mean, it's, it's a complete ripoff. But it's a totally different film, and, you know, and uh, and, I, and I enjoyed the high concept of it, but I, I didn't, you know, like the film at all. Um, because it just, it, it, well, it just went into the Grand Guignol, you know, went into, you know, I believe in, in, in verisimilitude, you know, the, the ring of truth. I, I love things that are real and then heightening things, but still keeping it close to the heart, keeping it close to the real. And they just got into the surreal and it's just not my cup of tea, but I did enjoy the first one for what it was until it went off the deep end. But the second and third one were, were the most cynical money grabs of anything and especially the third one they went out and made that film and didn't all they had was a release date they didn't even have a screenplay i don't know if you know that they just went out and shot it they they had nothing yeah they whereas with sideways chili which you know with the screenplay i mean it's it is really i've really again drawn from my life uh, it opens with miles doing a corporate outing with all these young millennials who work for a dot-com and they're drunk on their ass on this team. And I actually did this, but I, I heightened it for dramatic effect. You know, they're on one of these team building, you know, and they're all in their 20s and, and they're banging their fist on the table in this huge, you know, limousine bus, whatever, you know, screaming Merlot or whatever, because that's what I hear, you know, where I go to places. And, and, and Miles, uh, you know, he, he's, he's sort of become um, a victim of his own fame in a way. But what they don't realize is he, he didn't become, he wasn't enriched by this or he, he pissed it all away, you know, with the drink and everything else. And, um, and then he gets offered to go to Chile as I was. So I draw in real life. And, um, you know, he, he sort of finds his soul again. I guess I want to say that. And Jack does come down there to kind of rescue him. And, um, and there's a, you know, a heartfelt kind of reunion with Maya. Maya is now a winemaker up in the San Inez Valley and, and married, but unhappily married. And, um, and so I really, I, I kind of imagine the characters where they would be 10 years later. But in order for there to be a movie, I think, you know, some people disagree, but you guys in your podcast seem pretty adamant about it. And, I, and I'm pretty much in agreement with you. You've got to have Paul Giamatti. I mean, and without without Paul, 
without Thomas, you know, I mean, Batman is different. You can put anyone in that damn like you know latex suit you know what i mean we've seen michael keaton and george clooney and you know i know christian bale i don't, I don't watch those movies guys so but you know it but i think you know you gotta see paul you know and and obviously he's aged you know and 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 but in the movie it is 10 years later you know he is that guy and i know alexander you know he's done this big sci-fi film with Matt Damon, but he wanted Paul Giamatti, and and they, he couldn't get the money to make the film with Paul Giamatti. That that's the true story, and I'm sure he he likes Matt Damon, and Matt Damon's great, whatever. But the only way he get get to make this film, Downsizing, which will be released this Christmas, is 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 to go with a major star. And Paul, although he's a recognizable person, he's not he's not a guy who greenlights a, a major motion picture. I mean, if you look at his works and Sideways. You know, he's he's played supporting roles. He's had some leading roles in some things um, that in films that didn't do well. And now he does a TV show called Billions, which he he does star in. He's not a guy who can make a feature film. However, it doesn't matter if it's sideways. I trust me right now. It gets made if they want to do it. It gets made in a heartbeat. To me, actually, I would say, are you familiar with Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise trilogy? Because Sideways really reminds me of that in a sense that it is the kind of film where you could revisit it like seven years later, ten years later. And as long as you have those characters, there's something people are going to want to see. And you can continue those stories because they are so character driven. Without without question. I mean, I think there's you're going to go in and you're going to expect just just the reunions of the characters when, you know, Miles is on this corporate outing and Jack sort of saves him at the hitching post where he's he's giving some drunken cynical speech to these young people and telling them the world is ending basically uh and jack kind of saves them and it's like hey and they and they haven't seen each other in a while and you and you catch up with them and i think for fans of the movie you would be in that fictional way you would be um not revisiting but but catching up with old friends because bear in mind guys every time you put that dvd on it's the same movie you may you may see it through a different lens because you're at a different place in your life, but the movie is the same. But if we if we see Miles and Jack, you know, 10, 12 years later, you know, we're, we're, there's going to be, I think, a real desire and excitement and whatever. And 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 that there's a lot of a lot of funny stuff and the humor is in there. And um, hey, I mean, it's the number one question, guys. I get asked other than, do you really hate Merlot? is when are we going to see a sequel? Is there going to be a sequel? Is there? And I explained to him there are already a couple books, but but Sideways Chili is really, Vertical now is, it's not out of date at all, and I'm very proud of the book, but it's it's not, um, that wouldn't that wouldn't be the sequel, and it's, um, we're already kind of past that point. Chili would be the one, and because it, it is kind of where Miles is believably at today, and believably where Jack is at today, and, and I, I finally found a, a reason and a um, a narrative reason to bring Miles and Maya together in the end in these wonderful places in the Atacama Desert, which is in the very north of Chile. Um, it's the driest desert in the world, and uh, is a stargazing, you know, astronomer's paradise. In fact, the largest telescope in the world is there, and and then also down in Patagonia, in the very south of Chile. It's an extraordinary country. And I'd love to see them play play this out in a completely another world. Obviously, a lot of people would say, well, why don't they just go back up to the San Inez Valley? And, you know, if I were approached to write that screenplay, I'm sure that, you know, I could be, well, in Hollywood, there's an old saying, everyone has their price. But, you know, I could certainly take them back up there and, and, and now suddenly, you know, it's a success and everything else. And they are back up there in the opening part of Sideways Chili. But then Miles takes off again on a road trip. And, uh, you know, I hope, you know, the script we're still with the, the Chilean producers I'm involved with and Americans, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go through one more draft here. But there, there is an adaptation done by yours truly who has written more screenplays than he's written novels. You know, it's something that, um, you know, I, I really, I, my background is really in film. It's not really in fiction writing. So... One thing I'm interested to know, uh, it's now getting a little off topic. Um, if you could write a sequel to any film in the world, which film would you pick? Well, <laughs> the epigraph for my novel Sideways is, we've gone on holiday by mistake. So 
one of my favorite films is With Nail and I. I, I just love that film. I've seen it about 10 times. I mean, it's like, there's no question that there are elements of Sideways in there. And if, I know there's just something, they're so wacky and crazy in that film. I would just love, I'd love to see a sequel uh, to that. Now I admit, you know, they're probably, that film was made in what, 89. So, you know, it, it, you know, maybe they're a little too long in the tooth, you know, to revisit that or whatever. But I don't know. That's just one of my favorite films. And so, you know, I'd love to see a sequel to that. Well, say it was going to happen. Where, where would that sequel go? Well, if we, if we use the actors currently where they're at today, gosh, you, now you, you put me on the spot there, you know, I almost like to talk to, talk to Bruce Robinson. I, okay. I'll tell you. So they're totally sober now. They're totally sober, and they go out to the country to revisit this time, but then they both relapse. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, it's like, it's, it's Pandora's box. Uh, now it just, they, they just, now they relive it. But they go out and they try to hang on to their sobriety, but they just completely relapse. In fact, Bruce Robinson, and he told this story, uh, he'd gone 10 years and hadn't made a movie, and then uh, he was approached by Johnny Depp to do the Rum Diaries, uh, an ill-fated project and Bruce Robinson said the only way I can do this he told his wife this the only way I can write this adaptation of Hunter S. Thompson's novel unpublished novel by the way uh, is I have to start drinking <laughs> <laughs> so he's like so he, he he drank his way through the script and through the directing of it which no offense but it kind of looks like it and uh, I just thought that was kind of funny so yeah I think they they got to be sober and maybe one of them is uh you know is now a successful actor and and you know but they go out there and they and they relapse and 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 then i i don't know i don't know what happens but you know i i'm sure uh i was in london last year and i i know i love the uk you know i grew up in southern california so i'm used to 300 days of sunshine a year so i really enjoy gray and cold uh i enjoy public transportation here if i want to get toilet paper i got to get in my car you know i, I know I just something about the place that you know the I don't know, the British sense of humor is really, it, it's my sense of humor in some ways. It's, it's, it's kind of wry, sardonic, takes you by surprise. It can be very acidic and, and trenchant. And, and um, also your gift, your gift for language. I think I'd love that about Withnail and I there. I, I think you just put those two guys together and that gift for language that Bruce Robinson has, um, it, it, it would be a winner. You can't go wrong. So that's, that's my vote for a sequel. Good pick. Fantastic. Good pick. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Rex. That's really that's given us some really good insights there. So uh, I'm sure our listeners will find that fascinating. And I really hope that uh, Sideways Chili does get made one way or another. Because uh, I agree, I really think I could see that happening. And I think you really could re- revisit those characters anytime. And it would be there's such an audience of people who would really want to see those again. So yeah, I think I think it's just going to take you know Alexander Payne to you know I think he's wanted to work with Paul ever since Sideways, and he he hasn't been able to work with him. And here here's a golden opportunity, and maybe he'll relax his you know his own personal prohibition against doing a sequel as being tantamount to selling out which is what he sees it as i don't know you know it's not it it, i mean do you guys think it could be made with other actors I, I did mention, I feel like it could be made as like a Netflix series now. Maybe the, if there was going to be a remake, I think a film remake would always compare poorly. But these mm. days, so many things like classic films and classic novels are kind of being brought back onto kind of shows like Netflix as these kind of really high quality TV shows. I feel like that is a way that it could happen potentially. But it would, would be tough. Anyone who was going to be replaced Paul Giamatti would have a hell of a mountain to climb. So, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, we had we had that problem in London when we were casting is they went after a couple name actors and... And this was, you know, at the St. James Theater, a 300-seat theater and everything else. And uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't touch it because um, they just were afraid they were going to be compared to Paul Giamatti, honestly. And it, it does kind of, I guess, set a bar in, in, in some ways. Um, but, you know, Paul, Paul uh, is, is a relatively young guy still. I mean, when Sideways was shot, he was only 37 years old. So he's only, you know, 49 now or whatever. I mean, very much a leading man. But I think we, we look past you know um you know that maybe he's not you know ryan gosling in looks or whatever he because he's he's just he's just a fantastic actor you know he's just a great actor and and he's you're gonna settle right into where where he's at he's a funny he's a funny guy you know he's got that wonderful self-deprecating thing and i said to alexander he said well you know sequels you know they're always worse or whatever and i always bring up godfather too because you know the first godfather was big and splashy and you know and 
kind of pulpy and lurid and, and, and brilliant in many ways. But really, Godfather 2 is, is its superior film. You know, it, it, it is more epic and it's just a greater film. So I'm not saying Sideways Chili would be greater than the original, but it definitely it definitely does show the characters as matured at a different place in their life. It's not just like hangover, like, oh, let's just marry off this guy and I'll collect our huge paychecks and, you know, go about our our way to the bank. You know, it's, um you know, it's a complete it's a complete rehash and uh, it's just it's just a money grab this isn't about that this has its own sideways chili has its own journey and its own um trajectory that sideways the original doesn't have and and i think it it, it shows them having you know moved into more more into midlife and uh but you know these things they're you know there's no rhyme or reason to them, you know. There's there's certain forces out there. Trust me, Fox Searchlight would love to get that call from Alexander Payne because they they've had a pretty rocky year with with Birth of a Nation, you know, went down in flames and and a, and a recent film, you know, that didn't do well. And I, I'm not in, you know, I, I I think it's almost it's got a really good chance of of being a success because the fan base is so huge it really is and um but you know these things are out of my control guys i just write the material i write my character i still love writing miles and jack people say aren't you tired of that or doing it for the money not really um it i i love when i know the characters and i can hear their voices and I, and then i find myself in a new place like chile and i i put them there it, it's actually easy it's easy for me to write and to come up with stuff because you know, I it, it's my journey too. Remember, these are all written in first person from the standpoint of Miles. So, in a way, you're talking to Miles right now. So that was Rex Pickett, the author of Sideways. Um, thank you very much again, Rex, for uh, for coming on and uh, and interviewing with us. Yeah. And so next, we're doing uh, Gone Girl, wasn't it? That's, yes, that's your that's... choice. Um, but uh, I think after that, we probably will be doing with Nail and I. At some, at some point, point, I think we soon. have to. Yeah, yeah, I think we definitely have to now. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, please do tune in uh, later this week for Gone Girl. Um, and if you do have any questions for us... Oh, this is your bit normally. Mm-hmm. Um, you started, might as well finish. <laughs> if you do have any questions for us or any sequels you'd like to see or anybody who you would like us to try and have a, have a chat with, um, please get us on Beyond the Box Set on Facebook, Twitter, uh, or on beyond, beyondtheboxset.com. Um, yeah, and, uh, well, give us a subscribe and stuff on iTunes. and Send us some reviews. Send reviews, everything. And Rex Pickett's books, Sideways, Vertical, and Sideways Free Chile, are all available from all good publishers. So check them out. They're really good. Yeah. Great. See you in the next episode. Bye now. Bye. <laughs>